all the way. <laughs> to be honest, I was clueless. I didn't know it was already there. Thank you. Oh, okay. That's right, because I can scroll up. Okay. Well, as we enter the Christmas season, uh, pretty much every year, I, I really like to give some address, some attention to, uh, to what we're going to begin looking at uh, today and, and most likely next week as well. And it's the recognition that when we look in Scripture, that there is a theme woven through Scripture from the very beginning that Jesus was not an anomaly. Jesus was not a last-minute idea from God. Jesus was the plan from the very beginning. And that as, as we read through the Old Testament, uh, I was looking at, at something this past week, and it was written by a, a Jew, and it wasn't a Jew that believes in Jesus. But this Jew is still proclaiming this. He says the whole Old Testament, or what they would call the Tanakh, the, the scriptures for them, he said the whole scripture is about Messiah. And we would agree with that. Uh, and then we would recognize that Messiah has come. But I would like us to just look at a few. Uh, there are different people I've read that have different uh, summaries or different... Um, different sums of how many prophecies there are in the Old Testament related to Christ. Uh, I read that there are over 300. I just read recently that somebody said there's 365. And the bottom line is there's a whole bunch of prophecies that were spoken some hundreds of years, some way over a thousand years before Jesus came that point to Messiah. So that as we go into celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ in the next few weeks, as we look at that birth, that we're recognizing this is not a sentimental story. This is not just uh, an opportunity or even a wonderful reason to give gifts back and forth. That we're looking at the launching on planet Earth of a plan that God had spoken of from the very beginning. The plan still continues and you and I are actually embedded and engaged in the fulfillment of God's plan for Messiah and through Messiah. And so at least this week and next week, we'll see if I can get it done in two weeks. Uh, I would like us to look at just a very few, a tiny gathering of the promises of this majestic plan that God has in mind. And again, many of you are very familiar with this. You go to Genesis 3.15. And I'm trying to get better at remembering to write on this electronic thing. Um, I hope I can stick to it. But if you go to Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve have just sinned. Adam and Eve have just disobeyed God in the one thing he told them not to do. That God had given them a perfect universe, literally a perfect universe. And it provided everything they needed. And God said, here, here's everything. It all belongs to you. And then he placed them in a garden. And he said, in this garden is every kind of food and fruit. And you can enjoy 
all of it. I thought of it. I designed it. I made all of it for you. Enjoy everything. He said, but there's one tree. That is the knowledge of good and evil. Not just the existence or the possibility. That tree is about knowing evil. Don't eat from that tree. And of course, that's what the enemy points them to. That's what the tempter, the, the embodiment of Satan and Lucifer on planet Earth as a serpent says, God's trying to rob you of Godhood. And that is still a promise of, of so many false religions and false philosophies on, philosophies on planet Earth is that there is another way for you to obtain Godhood that doesn't require faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what Satan offered to Adam and Eve. They ate from that fruit. They were immediately ashamed. They immediately began to hide themselves from God who had never done anything but love them and pour out blessing on them. But as God is describing the consequences of their choice of sin, in Genesis 3.15, God speaks to Satan in verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And he's already told Adam, oh, actually he says it in the next few verses, you're going to have to sweat for things that up until now were just naturally available before you. So there's going to be physical consequences. There's already a spiritual consequence. You're hiding from me. The only one who has ever loved you perfectly, you were hiding from me. The spiritual impact is immediate and obvious. But he's predicting all other kinds of consequences. But I love that this right here in Genesis 3.15, he talks about seed. This is about a descendant. I need to make sure I don't write across instructions on my board. That's why I dropped down. That there is a... I have no idea where that went. There it is. Okay. I may, I may need electronic uh, assistance periodically. That this seed is about a descendant. And he's saying, you know what? This woman is going to give birth. And then others and others and others. And out of a seed of a woman, he describes this. He says, you, to Satan, you will harm him. You will harm him. But he will crush you. So there is a battle predicted here. And it's a battle that has many layers. But right here at the very beginning, God's saying, let me tell you how the battle will end. It will include you harming the one I send as the seed of a woman. 
But he will triumph because although you damage him, he ends you. That is a majestic promise. So Adam and Eve have just descended into sin. They have just begun damage in the universe. Romans 8 tells us that the whole universe is groaning under the weight of that damage. And, and I, I hope and I trust that all of us with just honest observation can look into the world and recognize the world is full of the damage of sin. And the world is full of beauty. The world is full of promise. The world is full of possibilities and potentials. And we get to celebrate that. And we get to be joyful over all that. But we also get to recognize with God, we see the damage that sin and Satan have brought into the world. And then we have this majestic promise. There is an end date to that evil. There is an end point to the reign of Satan in this universe. And he's just predicted it. And again, we could go through lots of passages, but if you will go to Psalm chapter 2, and I don't remember the context, but we read this psalm just a few months, I mean a few weeks ago, I believe. But the very second psalm, And this would have been something that that faithful Jews were frequently reading. They were reading it privately and individually. They would be reading it when they gathered for worship. And here is an incredible prophecy of Messiah. He says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And many of you know many of you know this. Many of you know this. Anointed is the word from which Messiah comes in the Hebrew. It is the word from which Christ comes in English. That the Christ is the anointed one. The Messiah is the anointed one. And so right here in Psalm 2, God is saying, I'm going to send my anointed one, but listen as he goes on. Let me drop down in verse 6. As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in his way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him, in the Son. So several things out of this passage. This is God's Son. He's a king. Over all nations. And he is to be worshipped. And he is to be trusted. For refuge.
So that recognition that God is saying some incredible things about this anointed one. He's not just anointed. He's not just given a special position. He's my son. He will be king over nations. And now everyone addresses me and comes to me through him. Now go to the passage that, that Patty read for us this morning in Daniel 7. Because right here in Psalm 2, we have that this is God's son. But here in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, we see this. I kept looking in the night, visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And again, similar to, to Psalm 2, we have now this son of man is also given a kingdom. He's a king over all nations. And so similar to the Son of God in Psalm 2, here the Son of Man in Daniel 7, he's talking about the same person. And we, we saw in Genesis 3.15, this was going to be the seed of a woman. This Son of God was going to come through a woman. And now a beautiful passage uh, Go to Isaiah 9, and it combines both of these. Go to Isaiah chapter 9, if I can get there. Right before Jeremiah. And in Isaiah 9, he says this in verse 6 and 7. Some of you are going to be getting Christmas cards with this passage written on it. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So here out of Isaiah 9, we have this, a child, a, a son is born. And, and again, this son is born. This is not the son of God just descending somehow from heaven Perfect, majestic, glowing with power and light. This is somehow a child actually being born, but a very unique child. Because he goes on to say that this son born is mighty God. You know, and we're so used to this. Um, how many people in the room have been a believer for over one year? Okay, I was just making sure you were awake. But most of you have been believers for over a year. 
Is there anybody in the room who's been a believer for over 50 years? I knew you were an old soul, but I didn't know that. Okay. A few hands went up for that. Uh, you get to keep working on that. But that recognition that whether you've been a believer for just a little while or you've been a believer for decades, the idea of God coming to the planet Earth as a son, we've sort of gotten used to that idea. And I do believe that every now and then we need to pause and be absolutely amazed at what is being spoken of here. That God is saying, I'm sending my son. He's going to be born of a woman. He is fully a man. And his true name is mighty God. His true name, this is bizarre, is everlasting father. And he's a wonderful counselor and he's the prince of peace. But you dare not miss the fact that he is the full revelation of God. And so this, this child, this son born, is the full revelation of God. As John in John chapter 1 tells us, now God has been, that is not an accurate end, but you know what it is. That this is the full revelation of God. God is pointing to something majestic. And so a faithful Jew reading the Old Testament scriptures has to grapple with this truth. There is one God, one God, one God. That was, in a sense, beat into them through multitudes of exiles and battles and corrections and prophets. There is one God. And he's going to be revealed on planet Earth through a child born to a woman. And he will be the full revelation of God. Now you'll notice also there. I lost the passage. But it also says. That he's going to rule over the throne of David. He will be a. Dis Switch to red. I don't know. He will be a descendant. Of David. And we could actually go past numerous passages that point to that. That God is saying, I'm doing a specific thing. He didn't just toss out a generic promise. And now lots of different people along the way could say, I'm that guy. He says, no, what I'm doing is going to be through one specific line. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then all the way down to Jesse. And then Jesse's son, David. And then through the line of David... I will bring about a king whose kingdom lasts forever, but who is me fully revealed. But he's greater than David. Turn to Psalm 110. Because in Psalm 110, we read this. This is David speaking. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. 
The Lord is right at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And so several things out of this. David calls this one who's being addressed and described in this passage, David's Lord. And in fact, Jesus even uses this to challenge how the Pharisees and the, and the scholars of his day, they had made Messiah small. They had made Messiah very small. They had decided that Messiah was going to come as a warrior who would free them from the reign of Rome. And that might sound amazing. If you're, if you're a country enslaved by Rome, that might sound amazing. And yet Jesus is saying, that is a horribly tiny vision of who I really am. You've made me a small thing at one point in human history to set a nation free from another nation. You have made Messiah tiny. And he says, now if Messiah is just a man, as he challenges them, he says, then why does David call him Lord? And so there's this conversation going on here between the Father and the Son, between God and Messiah. And he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit down while I destroy all your enemies and bring them under your submission. Sit down and relax while I bring all the nations of planet Earth under your dominion. Just as Psalm 2 predicted. Just as, as Daniel 7 predicted. Sit while I accomplish what I promised. And so he's Lord. He's greater than David. And so we have here again. This beautiful, beautiful recognition. That God is saying. I'm, I'm accomplishing a plan that stretches across human history. But he says this. Let's go to Isaiah 53. This majestic, majestic, majestic king who will reign over the nations has a detour first. And we won't read the whole thing. Um, I know I say this periodically. As believers, I think we should read Isaiah 53 every now and then. Just to get our minds freshly aware that hundreds of years before Jesus came, God was predicting that this death would be a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. And he says this in verse 4, Isaiah 53, Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And we could keep reading because this keeps being spoken of through this chapter, that here in Isaiah 53, this servant... This anointed one of God will be crushed 
And if we kept reading, that's exactly how it's described. He will be crushed for our sin. And then through that, he leads many to life. So here, hundreds of years before Jesus came, this little baby who's going to be born is being given a horrible destiny in some ways. A majestic destiny, but a horrible destiny. In fact, when Jesus is one week away from his death, and he's talking to his disciples, and he's in anguish, and he says, my, my spirit is vexed, my spirit is in anguish. And he says, should I pray to let this cup, to have this cup be removed? And he actually does pray that in the garden. But then he says where his heart already is and where his commitment already is and will be after that time of prayer in the garden. He says, but for this very purpose, I came. So that this is not, again, a, a sad, tragic turn of events in Jesus' life. God is revealing here prophetically that when I send that little child and that son is born and he's destined to one day reign majestically over all the nations, first I'm sending him to die a horrible death. And one thing that I, I hope we, we get and, and we keep remembering out of Isaiah 53, that the Messiah is crushed under God's wrath. He's crushed under God's punishment. So I, every now and then, I do hear people who talk about the fact, well, the Jews killed Jesus. Or, you know, in terms of the mechanics, the Romans killed Jesus. And what God is saying is, no, I killed my son. But for a reason. Your sin required a death sacrifice. My sin required a death sacrifice. So as we're heading into Christmas and we're celebrating wonderful things, and we should celebrate it. We'll talk about this later, a couple of weeks from now. But God did a really spectacular celebration for his son's birth. God didn't say, well, this is all about death. Don't get too excited. What he said is, I want thousands of angels spread across the sky singing to celebrate that my son has been born. We'll get to that. But, but he's saying, it's for a death that my son came. And your sin and my sin is the reason. But it was God's plan to crush Jesus under the wrath that we deserve. And we know this. But we get to keep going deeper and comprehending it and celebrating it and recognizing what's being involved here. Now, you probably noticed as I was reading in verse 5, it says, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. And we'd like you to go to Zechariah. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechari Zechariah, Malachi. And in chapter 12, the prophet is being given a vision from God of the final days. He's being in a vision of the future where, where Jesus will return, where Messiah will return. And the nation that rejected him will see him. And here's how it describes it. 
In verse 10 of Zechariah 12, I will pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And so he's describing here in Zechariah 12, I mean, yes, 12.10. And he also describes it in Psalm 22. And we won't go there right now. But that whole Psalm 22 is Jesus' own description of his crucifixion and the suffering and the physical experience of crucifixion. And it also describes being pierced, his hands and his feet pierced. And we've talked about this before, but this form of execution not only didn't exist when these prophecies weren't written, they didn't exist for hundreds of years more. The Romans came up with this particular form of execution about 200 years before Jesus was born. And even then, it was a scattered thing and a rare thing. So here's a description that didn't even exist for a form of execution. That God is saying, I already know exactly how my son's going to die. Because again, this is about a plan with a majestic purpose. It's not a tragic turn of events. It is tragic, but it's not a tragic turn of events. And that you and I get to recognize and, and I, I, I expect that anytime we have a group of people this large, there's somebody whose faith gets shaken as they go through life. They hear about a different philosophy. They hear about a different religion. They see somebody else excited about some alternate form of belief. Or they just get doubts about Christianity. And if I were to ask, in fact, Ollie will ask, everyone in the room who's a believer who has ever had doubts about Christianity, raise your hand. Okay, you're in good company. I think everybody in the room raised your hand. Even this guy who thinks he's been alive for more than 50 years. <laughs> you have kept your youth very amazingly well. When I'm 50 years old someday, I hope I look as good as you. But this recognition that we... It made me lose my train of thought. You made me lose my train of thought. That this recognition, what's the second part of that sentence? I'm recognizing it. Pardon? Doubts, yes. This recognition, thank you. Thank you. This recognition that practically every believer has struggled with doubts. If any time you want to step in and continue for me, feel free to. But that recognition that having doubts is normal. In fact, this is Jude, second to last book of the Bible. An amazing, an amazing, beautiful little passage. And here's what God has to say about doubts. Jude, verse 22. Have mercy on some who are doubting. He doesn't say, throw them away. He doesn't say, reject them. He doesn't say, kick them out. He doesn't say, write them off as a hopeless cause. He says, be merciful to them. 
Because the truth is, as we, raised, as we saw all those hands raised, virtually every believer will go through times of doubt. And as I've gone through different times of doubt in my life, one of the things that is most amazing to me is the recognition I have right here where I can study it and look back and I can examine the evidence and I can examine the history and I can examine the documents. I can examine the, the record of manuscripts. I have hundreds and hundreds of years of prophecy pointing to one man. And then the fulfillment in that one man's life of those prophecies. And in a way that means no other man can fulfill those prophecies. I think we've talked about this before, but in 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed, the genealogical records were destroyed with it. While Jesus was walking on the planet, he was frequently called the son of David. They knew this man is descended from David. We know the history of his lineage. If somebody stood up now in Jerusalem and said, I am a descendant of David, we would be absolutely within our rights to say, says who? You can't prove that anymore. After 70 AD, no one can prove they're a descendant of David. After 70 AD, no one can prove they're a descendant of David. So up until 70 AD, there might have been a multitude of pretenders. But we can go back through history and recognize there is nobody like Jesus who fulfilled hundreds of prophecies in one life, including prophecies you wouldn't want to be fulfilled. How many people would read all the crucifixion prophecies and go, hey, that sounds pretty cool. I'd like to arrange that for myself. And this recognition that Jesus majestically fulfilled the promise and the prophecy of Messiah. And just to close, let's go to Micah. Chapter 5. And in Micah chapter 5, let's, let's look at verse 12. I'm sorry. 5-2, not 5-12. 5-2. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. So once again, we now have here in Micah 5.2, we have a birth. And that birth is in Bethlehem. But this person who's been born is from the long ago days of eternity. That's amazing. 
And so when we're recognizing again, layer after layer after layer, God keeps trying to lay this in front of us. This is God on planet earth. This is a child born. This God is eternal. Jesus, there are are false teachings in some branches of Christianity that Jesus became the son of God after his adulthood. After he went and, and lived out in the desert for 40 days and nights and, and fasted and prayed and dedicated himself to ministry and he came back and John baptized him and the spirit descended on him. There are false teachings that say that's when he became the son. And what God is saying here in this simple passage is that child who was born in Bethlehem, he's been God forever. Don't you dare miss the truth that this is fully God come to planet earth for you, for you. This is personal. And that that gets to be part of our recognition as we continue the celebration into Christmas is we're looking at something majestic. I know I've said this before, but I love Christmas decorations. I love Christmas lights. I love all the trappings of Christmas. After we get the tree decorated, I'm still that four-year-old kid because I will lay, I will lay under the tree so I can look up through the tree and see all the lights glittering in the tree. And every year, Carrie says, we need to get rid of some of these lights. And I say, no, sweetheart, I need that many lights because I need to weave them all through the inside of the tree. And all of those trappings and all of those enjoyable things have nothing to do with Messiah. They're fun. We get to celebrate. We get to have fun. But somehow in the middle of all this fun and all this celebration and all this gift giving, that we would be wise enough to pause and go, Father, I want to comprehend this. You are the living God and you have fully revealed yourself to us through your son. And I have put my faith in your son dying on the cross, crushed under your wrath for my sin. Father, I want to celebrate that accomplishment through this baby born in Bethlehem. We get to plan for that and prepare our hearts for that celebration. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you are the true and the majestic God creator of heaven and earth. Father, you spoke this universe into existence. And now you have watched over the planting of your word, the writing of your word, sometimes down even to the tiniest word to accomplish prophecy because it mattered to you that there be no doubts whatsoever. You were pointing to the arrival of your son on on planet earth. You were describing his life and his death. And most important, Father, you were describing the eternal life that would be accomplished for us through his life, through his death and through his sacrifice. Father, as believers, we know these things. Some of us have known these things for decades. Some are just entering into the knowledge and celebration of these truths. But Father, we ask that your spirit would help us to go deeper in both a spiritual comprehension and then deeper in a true celebration, in gratitude. Father, in gratitude on top of gratitude. 
Jesus, nobody could obligate you to this. You said, Jesus, that nobody took your life from you. You laid it down out of your own initiative. Out of your own initiative, Jesus, you decided that I was worth it to you. And each one of us get to say, thank you, Jesus. That you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit agreed on this plan. To rescue us from sin. Through the horrible death that we deserved. And we will never have to taste it. Thank you Father in Jesus name. Amen.